0: But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers?" He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. If I haven't met you, my name is Jim Whittle. I'm a
1: PCA pastor for 20 plus years. And now uh, my wife Sherry and I live in Douglasville and we serve the Lord training leaders in India with Equipping Leaders International. And uh, so I know Andrew's somewhere today. New York, I think. Anyway, he sent me an email in November and asked me if I would come, and uh, so I told him I was getting back from India on Saturday. And so he said, well, can you come the next day? I said, sure, the jet lag works for you. I've been up since 2.30, and uh, so I'll crash after church. That's the way this works. So if anybody's bound to fall asleep in the sermon this morning, well, it's probably going to be me. And so... So we'll see how we do. Um, Woody Allen tells a great joke about one of the traditions among rabbis in the, in the Jewish faith. And uh, it goes like uh, about asking questions. So it goes like this. So this congregate walked into the rabbi's office and he said, Rabbi, I have a question. Why do rabbis always answer questions with a question? And the rabbi sat there for a moment and and then responded and said, well, why shouldn't the rabbi always answer a question with a question? Well, that's what Jesus did in our story here. The man asks a question, and Jesus answers that question for him. Jesus is in the journey where he's headed resolutely to Jerusalem. He's going there for his passion and for his death. And along the way in this section of Luke, he's been teaching his disciples a lot of lessons about the kingdom and and who belongs in the kingdom and what the kingdom of God is like. And so this story fits into that picture. It's more of the same. And the kingdom of God is so counter to our natural impulses that we have to encounter it many times before it digs into our soul. So this morning, I, I wanted to share this story with you. It's a story of grace. And I have two things, two two points about the gospel I want to share with you this morning. The first is, who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus is in one of the towns on the way to Jerusalem and he's obviously teaching a crowd because the lawyer stands up to ask his question. And knowing that, Jesus, knowing that the lawyer is part of the religious establishment that is usually against him, and, and knowing that a lawyer already has a pretty firm grasp of the Scriptures, Jesus assumes, I think, that this man is not an earnest seeker who's desiring truth, but instead a rival asking a question as a test of sorts. It's a, it's a question meant to embarrass Jesus by putting him on the spot against the religious expert. So Jesus responds to the question... With a question, which, by the way, is a great technique for teaching, even better for evangelism. You want to share the gospel with a friend, let them ask questions, respond with questions. It helps you understand the other person better, and it also keeps the conversation on track with a person's real needs. So that's what Jesus did here. And the lawyer gives a solid answer. From from Deuteronomy 6, he pulls forth the command to love God from a full heart. And from Leviticus 19, he calls out the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is sound theology. And for his efforts, he gets a nice little pat on the back from Jesus. End of story. Well, not quite, because like all moralists, and all legalists and all the people who try to justify themselves before God, the lawyer wants to know exactly what that means. What? Just who is my neighbor? And what exactly do I have to do? How do I do this in a way that's acceptable to God? And if you ask that question in Israel at that time, you would have received various answers to the question. All meant, of course, to support my chosen lifestyle— all meant to justify the way I'm living my life. So some said, you're to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, Jesus dealt with that one in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells them that we need to imitate God. And in order to do that, we have to love our enemies because God loves his enemies, sending the rain on the good and the evil. And then others, when they answered the question, they said, well, you're to love your neighbor, the Israelite. In other words, neighbors are defined as the same ethnic or national group. That would mean that for whites, our neighbors are whites. For blacks, our neighbors are blacks. For Americans, our neighbors are Americans. Never, of course, Syrians. Some said that you're to, to love your neighbor the Pharisee. In other words, neighbors are decide, defined as the, same, as the people in the same denomination or sect. So, of course, our neighbors would be Presbyterians, and rightly so. In the radical radical sect of the Qumran in the desert, they said this, if you're not one of us, then you're a son of darkness. Now, that's pretty exclusive. In the church, it goes like this. Well, we all know we're supposed to help out the, the less fortunate, but just how far do we have to go? Or how about this one? Doesn't charity begin at home? I mean, really, shouldn't their own family help them, not not us? Or how about this one? I'm busy with my kids and my church and my job, and besides, mercy is really the job of social services, isn't it? Or how about this one? Aren't the poor really just sinful, irresponsible people who are bearing the direct consequences of sin and we should just let them feel the weight of their sin instead of helping them you see the goal of all these questions the goal of all these definitions is to diminish the requirements of love in order to do exactly what the lawyer wants to do which is in order to justify ourselves so that we'll feel like we're doing well in the kingdom and we're okay in heaven and we're good folks so who is my neighbor then well the answer is found in the parable a certain jewish man is traveling on down the jericho road from jerusalem he must be jewish because jesus doesn't say now jerusalem is at about almost 3000 feet above sea level and jericho is almost 1000 feet below sea level and the dead sea is another 500 feet down from that and so the jericho road is about 17 miles with a 4000 foot decline or ascent depending on which way you're traveling it is rocky, mountainous, winding, and quite dangerous. And it was a favorite place for thieves. And there were plenty of places to hide and, and, and to give ambush. And the man in this parable is destroyed by the thieves, and he's left for dead. So two religious professionals encountered this beaten man on their way from Jerusalem. Jericho was the home of many priests in Israel, so it's like these two potential neighbors have been to Jerusalem for some official religious business like Presbytery, and they are now on their way home. And the priest goes first, and he walks on the other side of the road. Now, the story doesn't tell us his motivation or his, for avoidance, but it, but it made you ceremonially unclean to touch a dead body, and if he's ceremonially unclean, he can't do his job for a day. And what is obvious is that the inconvenience of of stopping is too much compared to his self-importance. Now, the priests in the Old Testament and in Israel were in charge of public health. and, And more central to his role of priest was his shepherding duties for Israel, and that was more important than his ceremonially ceremonial cleanliness and and though he's not he's not close enough to tell if this man is a fellow Jew to him well it doesn't seem to matter and yet here's what Leviticus 19 34 says the alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born love him as yourself for you were aliens in Egypt I am the Lord your God you see not stopping is inexcusable we know it, the lawyer knows it, the crowd knows it, the priest is a bad neighbor. So the Levite goes next and he repeats the avoidance. Largely I think for the same reasons. The Levites now are in charge of alms for the poor. So who better qualified to help than a beaten man on the road on the Jericho road, a highway a known highway for thieves. That's a perfect person for a Levite to help. In fact, here's what Exodus 23, verse 4 says. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help him with it. So even the animals of your enemies are to be treated better than they are treating this man. Not stopping is inexcusable. We know it. The lawyer knows it, the crowd knows it, the Levite is a bad neighbor. So now we get to the turning point of the story, you know it well. The listeners at this point would be expecting another character and they've been set up by Jesus for an anti-clergy theme. Um, they've already been shown that the pastors and the elders are deadbeat, so may the crowd knows that the establishment is not real excited about Jesus and though the man is the lawyer is not a priest or a levite he is part of the establishment so they're hanging on his words and expecting a common jewish man to be the hero and they'll all laugh they'll all have a good laugh about how pastors have let them down have you ever noticed how much people enjoy a good story about a pastor's failure it, it always makes the news and I guess it justifies our own sin somehow. If the pastor's fallen, then I can be fallen too. My my church in Douglasville always liked it when I told them myself in the pulpit. Now, I find that extremely weird. But may, maybe they liked it because it makes me more human. Well, i got to tell you, I'm plenty human. But... I, I always did it because the gospel is about repentance and rest which means that the chief confessor in the church is the pastor so i felt like that was my role but they actually enjoyed it somehow i thought i thought it was weird the hero of this story is a samaritan and a samaritan hero is devastating to everyone, from the disciples who wanted to kill Samaritans with heavenly fire, just a chapter before in Luke 9, to the lawyer who would certainly have hated them, there's no way that the Samaritan would do better than these fine Jewish leaders. Now, I think if this, if this parable was told in the Old South, this would play as a white businessman who's broken, and first a white pastor... And then a white elder bypass him on the road while a black trash collector stops to help him. Or maybe in modern American, maybe the Samaritan is a Syrian refugee. Or, or maybe it's an illegal immigrant from south of the border. The hero is a Samaritan hated by Jews. And what a hero he is. He cleans his wounds with wine so if you're wondering about that grape juice wine thing in the Bible, grape juice has no alcohol, wine is an antiseptic, so this had to have alcohol in it. And then he treats, you know, that's why the details are in the scriptures, right? And, and, then, and then he treats the pain with oil. He bandaged his wounds, and then, because the wounded man couldn't walk, he put him on his own beast and walked himself. And then he put the man up in a local inn for a time of healing. He then gave the innkeeper two denarii, which is the equivalent of two days' wages for an average man, which would have paid for at least a week in the inn. And then he told the innkeeper he would pay more if necessary when he returned. Now, I imagine the crowd is just sitting in stunned silence, listening to the expansive mercy of their enemy. And I imagine the lawyer is probably standing there with his mouth open, wondering what to say. So Jesus asked him the obvious question, who was a neighbor to the man in need? And the answer is the one who showed him mercy. So, that gets us to the second thing that I wanted to show you this morning, which is go and do likewise. Now, the first fundamental worldview change for the lawyer is realizing that he asked the wrong question. The gospel, the the question the gospel asks is not, who is my neighbor? Rather, the gospel asks, who am I called to be a neighbor to? The question is not, what boundaries do I put on my love for my neighbor, figuring out whether to help or not? Rather, the gospel asks, what boundless love can I show as a neighbor to somebody in need? The question is not, how do I justify myself before God? Rather, the gospel asks, as a justified person who believes in Christ, how do I imitate the love of Christ? You know, it's amazing how much we like rules. The the gospel says, love your neighbor as yourself. And we say, Lord, who's my neighbor? Our flesh loves to ask the question, Lord, is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do that? Is this forbidden? Is that forbidden? Sherry and I just were in India, got back yesterday and taught three marriage conferences over three weeks to a group of pastors and leaders. And at one point, we were teaching on divorce from Matthew 19. And in that lesson... The Pharisees asked the question, they're, they're wanting to know, can they can can you get divorced for any reason? And see, that's what legalists and moralists and self-justifiers want to know. Can I do what I want to do and still be acceptable to God? And so Jesus says, My friend, it's a wrong question. The gospel is about love. That's what he says about marriage. Loving your neighbor is about assessing needs and meeting them. It's about asking the question, how do I want to be loved? That's how I'll love. I guarantee you that the priest and the Levite would have longed for someone to stop and to help them if they were wounded on that same road. So you want justification? Is that what we're after? Well, the problem is is the gospel paradoxically sets the standard of justification of yourself. Jesus says judge not lest you be judged. The standard for judgment in the kingdom is your own motives, your own attitudes, and your own behaviors. All the Lord will have to do is ask not, he won't have to ask if you kept the 10 commandments. He'll just say did you keep your own judgments? So, that's the way it works in the kingdom. Love as you want to be loved. Forgive as you've forgiven others. That's what we even pray for in the Lord's Prayer. We have to pray for it because it's so hard. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And then when you get to the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, and the blessed sheep are separated from the cursed goats, and the blessed sheep inherit eternal life, and they are those who have ministered to the broken in Jesus' name. So we've now established the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And the answer is anyone in need. And how much are we supposed to help? Well, as much as the good Samaritan. We're supposed to do whatever it costs to lift the fallen out of their need. And you see, at that point, we've just crossed the line and we've come to the real heart of the parable and the greater worldview shift that we need to have because we just made the good Samaritans good works as the means of salvation. Did you see that? The lawyer asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Is that really it? Follow the Samaritan's good example and I'll get eternal life? That can't be it because the gospel is about grace. Because if the world could be saved through following the example of good works, then it would have been saved the minute that Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see, sinners cannot save themselves by being good or merciful like the Samaritan. If the law could give life, if go and do likewise, imparted life, then righteousness would not be a matter of faith in Christ, but a matter of following good examples like the Samaritans. So parables are hard. They're paradoxical. In many of the parables, there is a a Jesus figure. And so part of the lesson is to figure out who Jesus is in the parable. That helps you a lot because the parable is about responding correctly to Jesus. Now there's only two real options in this story. I don't think Jesus is the priest, do you? And he can't be the Levite. So the other three people are the broken man on the road, the innkeeper, and the Samaritan. So which one is it? Well, I think most people have a a knee flex impulse and say, well, Jesus is the good Samaritan because he helps people. But for just a few moments, I want you to follow me down another road And that road says that the central character in this story is the broken man, that he's the hero. The Samaritan is not the key to the story. The central character is the broken man on the side of the road. Like Jesus headed to Jerusalem to die, so this man was on the downward road, literally headed toward danger, where he was rejected by his own and left for dead. Jesus is not the Samaritan in this story. Jesus is the man left for dead because that's what people do. That broken man is our hero. And the stories leading up to this one in Luke tell me that that's so because here's what they're about. They're about last things and lost things and least things and little things and dead things. You see, the gospel is all about redeeming the broken we confess that earlier in, in, in our reading that the wisdom of man is turned on its head by the gospel. So in Christ the first are last. You see the lost are found the greatest are least. The father reveals himself the little children and life comes through death on a cross. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross daily and follow after me. So so what does it mean? What does it mean, go and do likewise, if it's not the list of good works the Samaritan did? Well, to answer that question, you have to step one step further back from the text so you can see a little clearer. In this story, it's about two winners and two losers. The priest and the Levite are the winners. They're the insiders, the establishment. And the broken man and the Samaritan are the losers. They're the outsiders, the neglected. And the two winners, you see, see the broken loser on the side of the road, and they find themselves either unwilling or unable to see an outsider as having any claims on their attention nor does he have any relevance to their work as spiritual leaders, as the insiders in Israel. To do their insider job, they need to stay clean. They can't help this man. So they have important matters to attend to, and they see no point in allowing their lives or their plans from being ruined by giving mercy to some outcast. It's probably his fault anyway. It's always the fault of outsiders. He's probably just some drunk that fell around the corner in the road and hit his head. You see, just like Jesus, this man came to his own and his own knew him not. Jesus was such a loser that he died on a cross. Real messiahs, real saviors, don't are winners, they don't die, they win. But then comes the Samaritan. He's an outsider himself, and he knows it. It is one loser giving grace to another loser. Because you see, the gospel is for losers. And I know you know that. Because in the quiet moments of your life, when you're talking only with Jesus, and you're all by yourself, and you confess to him that you're not worthy of his love, that you don't know why he forgives you again and again, and you wonder if you'll ever get it. That's what you say to him. I know that's what you say. And then somebody agrees with your self assessment that you're a loser, and your pride gets all pricked, and your chest puss out, and you say, Hey, you don't know what I'm going through. Well, yeah, I do. You're a loser. And you see, I'm a loser. We have the same life. The Samaritan knows that he's under reproach himself. He knows he's an outsider, so he identifies with the man on the ground who is the real Jesus in this story. And he involves himself in the passion of Christ. He identifies with Christ, and that is the point of parables to identify with Christ and his kingdom on his terms and not ours. Now, here's the bad news. Do you know why we resist the radical mercy shown by the Samaritan? It's because we think we're winners. We're educated Presbyterians. We're the good people. We vote Republican. And it is distasteful For good winners to hang out with bad losers. Oh, yeah, we know that we need a little forgiveness because everybody needs forgiveness, but all we need is a little help, not a lot. And occasionally we'll get a little dirty to help on a Saturday because that's what good folks do. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. And then we're stuck, you see, because we don't want to do it. But Jesus says to do this mercy, expensive, time-consuming, sacrificial, self-denying love, to be a neighbor to the broken, the needy, and the lost, not just for a moment, but ongoing. I mean, think about the cost to be merciful versus our pursuit of our own thing as we accrue more and more and then stick it in a closet. Imagine when this guy gets home, and he explains to his wife that he spent all his travel cash helping this deadbeat, and then he swiped his Visa card for the innkeeper. Whatever joy he had over doing good is momentary when he gets home, and he gets a tongue lashing for such foolishness and spending money unwisely. Because you see, the truth is, the good Samaritan is a terrible example. He's a terrible example of being the, of the power of being a good guy. Good guys finish last. Instead, he's an incredible example of a loser, an outcast, an outsider who knows himself and has insights into the reality of the gospel. Last things and lost things and least things and little things and dead things who recognizes a fellow loser and loves him which is exactly what Jesus said in verse 23 before Ben read the passage. Jesus says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. That's what the Samaritan saw. And then do you know what the next story is in your Bible? Well, it's Martha and Mary. No surprise there. About one who sees and one who doesn't. One who wants Jesus on his terms and one who wants Jesus on her own terms, her terms. Mary is content to know her Savior. So then you get to Matthew 25 again, and Jesus says to the blessed sheep, who, by the way, inherit eternal life, he says, Inasmuch as you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. In other words... Beloved, we don't feed the hungry losers because we're well-fed and have leftovers. We feed the hungry loser because we're fellow hungry losers. We don't have leftovers. Anything we have has been given from above. We visit those in prison because we're prisoners ourselves, locked into the flesh in our own blindness. We give a cu- cup of cold water in Christ's name to the thirsty because we're thirsty. We're just like the broken outba- outcast on the road, hurt and needy, lost and least, overlooked and rejected. But here's the good news, beloved. The good news is is that the gospel says we can only be saved by following these kinds of bad examples. Countercultural losers like the good Samaritan who shares his livelihood on a loser by the side of the road and by a savior who dies an excruciating death for his unworthy friends and by Mary who's content to know her savior. That's what it means to be the blessed sheep. The good news is, is that Christ invites us, beloved, to forsake our posturing and our reputation and our good works and our guilty drive to be good and acceptable and instead to be the neighbor of Christ and put all our hope and trust in him who lived the perfect life and died a loser's death in our place so that eternal life would come to broken losers like us. So I invite you today to repent, to turn away of thinking of yourself as a winner, as an insider, as a good person who occasionally helps needy people, Ben told me to remind you that he's helping Nathan on Tuesday, so I'm supposed to guilt you into that. But I'm telling you here, see, the gospel sets you free from that guilt. You do it because you love him, not because the preacher says so. Because you need the same help he needs. To turn away from trying to live and be willing to die. To stop trying to be great when the kingdom is for the least and the last. Instead, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Be a neighbor to King Jesus. Put all your hope and trust in him, who in the least of his brothers is already a neighbor to the whole world of losers like you and me. And the promise, beloved, is everlasting life. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Stand for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word because it's a light unto our path, lamp unto our feet. It shows us the way that's true. The wisdom of this world puts us on crooked paths and your word puts us on a straight path right back to you. And we love you for that. And Father, again and again, we find that our pride... And our self-seeking and our self-serving is attacked by the gospel of grace, and you do that through your Holy Spirit for our good. We thank you for that ministry of the Holy Spirit that continually shows our flesh has found one thing and will not satisfy. So our prayer this morning is that we would have a change of heart and attitude towards the people around us, that we would see ourselves just as needy as anybody we meet, And that we would have eyes to see the Christ that is in that broken person who is the least of his brothers. And that we would respond with mercy, the same mercy that's been shown to us. And Lord, that you'd little by little break this out of us and mold us in the image of Christ for the glory of your kingdom. And for our satisfaction, we pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.